Hey, Reach Paramount, welcome to our podcast. Hey, this message is from our midweek service with our very own evangelist, John Tahaji, in a message entitled, Keepers of the Faith. Enjoy this message. Praise God, can you guys hear me? Oh, stay standing. Can we give it up for our pastors? You guys love your pastors? Pastor Omar Sisoleki, we thank you for your service. Um, and before we sit down, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say if it, it is not for uh, the stewardship, the apostleship of my pastors, I would not be here today. Completely just uh, astound me and, and just the, ability, the, the privilege that I have to now in this season of my life. I'm so blessed, not just because of what is happening in my life, but I get to be closer to my pastor now. There's, there's, there's access there. So not to make you guys jealous, but I, I, I take on the privilege. So uh, God is good. You guys may be seated. Um, amen. So like always, the Lord told me to share something. He put it on my heart. And I know that I know that I know that he shared that he told me to share this. Uh, I have faith and believe. And then I hear the voice of the enemy saying, don't share this because no one's going to respond. Nobody's going to get it. And guess which voice I listen to? straight up there's there's no other way and uh despite all the insecurities the worry the confusion there's nothing like being in his presence and finding that that security finding that just that that drive to know this is this is what the lord's called me to do so um we as bible believing christians are locked into this battle the bible tells us that we don't fight a battle of flesh and blood right but we're fighting against these hosts of wickedness basically this is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. This is not a tea party to where we talk about the, the, the things that are going on. It is a life or death conflict between the spiritual host of wickedness and those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. And I believe this, that the only possible posture for individuals, for families, and for churches, anyone who has any hope of following Christ in America today is to be consciously countercultural, to be set apart, Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's this book uh, that I literally just opened like two days ago. The very first thing that it says is this. It's by uh, David Platt, and it says, How should Christians respond to such a rapidly changing American culture? Do we resign ourselves to pessimism? Do we think that, the, that our moral foundations and everything that America has fought through and has become as a nation, that it is completely irrecoverable? Or do we respond with, uh, with optimism, confident that we could still win the cultural war as if we were just tonight together spiritually, personally, politically, and philosophically? That sounds like the right thing to do, right? But I propose this. That neither pessimism nor optimism is the answer. Instead, it's realism. Why? Because I believe that our God is sovereign and everything that is happening in today's world is preparation for Jesus to return. That nothing that goes on in the world is not, uh, that God does, doesn't allow it. We know that he is sovereign and he's, con- he's controlling everything. So, tonight, we're going to go on a roller coaster with me at least. But I believe that The Holy Spirit is going to make this smooth sailing. I ask you today, and this was my prayer more than anything. I spent more time in this prayer than preparing the message that you would not hear a sermon, but you would allow the Holy Spirit to challenge your every way of thinking, 
to break down uh, the, those walls that, of religion that we may have and maybe the pride that we have. And just let the Spirit speak to you. There's nothing that I'm going to say that is not in the Word of God. So we're going we're gonna to be challenged tonight. So uh, I'm going to pray. Father, we just thank you for this time, Lord, just for the gathering of one another, Lord, the privilege that we have to gather in your house. I ask you, Lord, right now that I humble myself and say, Lord, that, that you would use me that I'm just a vessel that you would deliver these words from my mouth into the hearts of your people. We give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's about four, four to seven years, nobody knows the exact time, that after Jesus' death, there was a former persecutor of the Christian church that was on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, that way was Jesus, he says, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus exposes himself to to Saul of Tarsus, who is now Paul, right? He literally sees Jesus. He's told what to do and there's no no fighting it. I'm going to do it. This is how powerful one moment with Jesus is. I mean, in a moment, a life, the worst of us, right? Completely changed. Everything about him changed. All the walls of religion, the tradition, all of the things that he was used to doing in his right mind that he thought was right, no longer exposed to who Jesus really is. So I want to encourage somebody. That you're believing for a family member. You say they're way too far gone. There's somebody that is burdened in your heart. You're saying, will they ever get saved? I'm telling you in a moment. Just one encounter with Jesus can completely change them. I'm going to encourage you a little more. You say, they're, the, they're, they're pretty bad. I don't, I don't think the Lord can do it. I look, at, I look across the landscape of this room. I look at people that come from different places. I mean, we have our brother Justin, right? Sentenced 82 years to life in prison. We look at so many people across this room, whatever you came from, whoever you're believing for, I can tell you right now that there is somebody in this room that lived the life that they lived. No, amen, right? No one is too far from the Lord. You look at wives that were believing for their husbands. Some of them are here right now. You look at husbands that were believing their wives to come. Some of them are here right now. Your children are saved. God can do it. And I believe that. Come on, give God some praise. Hallelujah. In Acts chapter 22, Paul begins to explain how he was there for the death of the very first person that died in Jesus' name. He's going on to explain. He says... I held the coats of the very people that stoned Stephen. That's how, that's how, that's how, and he, he said, you know what? Like, I, I gave them permission. I like, I almost condoned it. And um, so, so now he's saved. And the very first thing that he, that he, that Paul does now for, for, for three years, he goes off far away. And what he does is he reflects and he prays. Some of you guys here that are just got saved or maybe you're kind of struggling in your walk with God, wherever you come from, right? Can I tell you the very best thing that you can do when you, when you first get saved, when you recommit your life to the Lord, it's to reflect and to pray. Because when you begin to reflect about all the things that the Lord has saved you from, you now have gratitude. And gratitude now leads, leads to peace. And when you pray, you're able to attain that gratitude and that peace that the enemy wants to steal. 
So if we learn all the things from, from, from Paul, all of his letters and all these things, let's learn from the very first thing that he did was reflect and to pray. Now we're going to fast forward to almost the end of Paul's ministry. He, he, he's now on his third missions trip and he goes to Ephesus. And for two years and a couple months, he's now with Ephesus. He spent his most time here with the church of Ephesus than any other church that he spent his time with. And towards the end and everything, almost all is said and done, he now gives it over to his protege, to his disciple, Timothy. And this church was a wealthy church. It had power. It had resources. It had all the acclaim. It had a, a good reputation. But it was, it was John who was persecuted, he was put in, he was put in oil, and, and, and he survived, and now he's, he's like thrown on this island of Patmos, uh, and he's a prisoner there, and now Jesus exposes himself to, to John, he says, hey, I want you to write this down, I want you to write this down to seven churches, and one of them is Ephesus, and this is what it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it says, to the angel in the church of Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Isn't it amazing how this church in Ephesus, all of the great things, right? Can you imagine Jesus coming to research? You, You got all of these great things. But you forgot your first love. And what I find about amazing about this church is it's, it's, how they could discern the false prophets, how they could discern about everyone else but themselves. And most of every church that Paul went on to, every church that he started, everything on his third missions trip, every church in minor Asia that Jesus had written about and gave John a letter for, you look at it, right? All those churches, they were all in what would be modern day Western Turkey. And when I look at it now, Every single one of those churches, gone. You can barely see the footprints of Christianity in Western Turkey today. For every Christian church, there is about a hundred mosques. Gone. Swallowed up. How can a thriving church, a church that was completely on fire. I mean, this was the greatest move of God that we would have ever seen. Completely gone. Swallowed up by a false deity. Swallowed up by a false religion. Can you imagine how almost 2,000 years later where Christianity was once dominated is now taken over by Islam. If you think of the church, they were persecuted The very first church, they were persecuted. And now you have, I mean, so much, so they they were for almost a thousand years persecuted, going through what they were going through, and now completely gone. When you think of the Middle East, you don't think of Christianity. When you think of all these churches that Paul had been to, Christianity has been swallowed up. And so you begin to survey the land, take a look for yourself. Even in our own backyard, you begin to take a look, right? There are attacks in Christianity today. 
There is persecution, but not to the point of death. If you think about those churches, how they were able to withstand persecution and still thrive. They could withstand persecution and still be used by God. What happened? If it wasn't the persecution, what could possibly happen to these churches? And oftentimes, we like to look at the attacks that come from the outside of the church, right? And we always neglect the attacks that come from the inside of the church. And today, the greatest attacks against Christianity, against the church in America in our own backyard, it's not the things on the outside as much as it is the things on the inside. You look at all the churches that no longer exist. You look at all of Paul's ministry. You look at all the churches that had closed during COVID. You look at all the churches that are closing every single week, every month, every year, all across our nation. What would it be? What could have possibly happened? But now there is something that is like a cancer, a major threat to the church. It's a leech that has been creeping and crawling into the churches today. And it was so important that even Jesus had spoken about it. While he was ministering on this earth, plenty of messages about what we're about to talk about today. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7 verse 15. He says, beware of what? Of false Prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are raven, uh, ravenous wolves. Paul, in Acts chapter 20, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That is the church. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. False prophets, false teachers, false believers. We look at, we look at the structure of Christianity today. You can get online and you can look at all of these mega churches that are standing that look like the church of Ephesus. Neglecting the entire counsel of God's word for the sake of their numbers, for the sake of their tithing, and for the sake of not offending anybody at all. When you think about how Islam came about, it wasn't from God. It wasn't from Jesus. He never spoke that. It was from people that decided to twist and pervert the word of God for their own pleasure. Men speaking their own revelation rather than the word of God. There is an undermining of the divinity of Jesus and blaspheming God when these people begin to speak. You look at America. You look at the state that it's in. I, know, I, notice, I notice I talk about a lot of the church in America. Maybe I'll explain it to you. When the lockdowns happened, what some people would consider a pandemic, right? There was no church. There was nothing. And I prayed. I prayed. I said, Lord, if I don't find you now, I feel like I never will. And I said, okay, Lord, I found you. Now what would you do with my life? And in that time, the Lord began to speak to me. He said, John, I'm going to call you to preach my word. And it was in that time when there was no church at all that I was given character, that I was given integrity, and I was give, learning the voice of the Holy Spirit to be obedient for moments like this. I share this scripture almost every message I speak. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers that say with their itching ears, want to hear. Now, we see this. Uh, there, there's people all across 
churches, even Christian churches everywhere, they, they're going to preach and they're going to say what they want to hear and people are going to, they're going to gravitate towards them. But you know what has, has not only sped this up, but has exposed it is social media. We click on it. We like it. We share it. And we don't know they're false prophets because we don't test and discern their spirits. I used to follow this Instagram account. They have, right now they have 1.4 million followers. And they post just random stuff, right? It, it, God is going to do something amazing for you today. Your breakthrough is right around the corner. My goodness, it's only Tuesday. All I got to do is laundry. Praise God. Right? Like, and can you imagine this falling on, on bad soil for 1.4 million people? Another, your financial breakthrough is on the way. Forget if they're good stewards of their money. Forget if they're faithful in giving their tithes. Oh, but God's going to do it because I said so. <laughs> My goodness. And you look at the Instagram lives and, and you look at uh, these people getting live on YouTube. Hey, I said this before. Social media has given a platform for fools. Talking on their own accord, saying their own revelation, right? They can go an hour and a half, two hours without even mentioning a scripture. Your husband is on the way. Breakthrough is on the way. All of these great things, right? And listen, this doesn't bother me as much as the people in the comments. Mm, praise God. Yeah, that's good. I received that. That's for me. And, and I'm, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm sick and tired of people just thumbing it, right? So that's what they're doing. They're thumbing it. They got strong thumbs, but weak souls. If it was a problem with the very first church, if it was problematic enough for Jesus to speak about it, how bad do you think it is today? More now than ever before, we turn to this letter. It is a short letter. It is one of the, what theologians would consider the most neglected letter in all of the 66 books and letters in the New Testament. It is the least preached. It is the least mentioned because it is short and hard-hitting. And for the sake of its heavy doctrine, it is undermined, it is devalued, and underappreciated. Because it speaks to areas that we don't want to be challenged in. But I struggle with what is happening to our nation. I believe that it is more relevant now than ever before. I felt the Holy Spirit say, John, you must speak this to my people. And as much as I wrestled with it, God gave me just word after word and, and, and gave me resources. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going to do it. So we need this letter. The year is almost like AD 65. It's about 30, 30 years after uh, Jesus had died and, and, and resurrected and then ascended to heaven. And the author is Jude. One of the smallest books in the Bible, right before Revelation in the New Testament. The church is flourishing. The church is multiplying. And despite the growth, consider how the first church, including the church of Ephesus, was subject to persecution by the Roman Empire. But now, the church is being exposed to something greater, like a dangerous cancer that is eating its way from the inside. Jude takes account of what is happening. And, he's, and, and now he writes to the believers. He says this. Jude only has one chapter. In the very first verse, he says this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. This James, when you study the scripture, is the brother of Jesus. Jude says, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. When you understand that James was a brother of Jesus, Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew tells us that, that Jude and Judas, this was Jesus' brother too. 
Jude, uh, his, his, his name in Greek is Judas. Is Judas short for, uh, for Judas like Sam is for Samuel. There's three Judases uh, that are mentioned in the Bible. And this one was known also to be Jesus' brother. So he says, he says this, James was a brother of Jesus. Jude is not only a servant of Jesus, but he's also a brother. In John chapter 7 verse 5, it says, it says this. When Jesus goes back to his hometown, he's preaching and, and, and it says this. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. This is Jude. And in Matthew chapter 12 verse 46, it says, for while Jesus was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. In the same account, the very same, uh, the same thing that happened. It's the same account. Just Mark writes about it in chapter 3, verse 21. And he says this. He says they were waiting for Jesus because they thought he was out of his mind. Jude did not believe in his brother. It was three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Every teaching, every miracle. It wasn't even the death that, that made Jude uh, believe in Jesus. Like, how can you be a brother of Jesus? You grow up with him. Hear all the prophecies. He's going to die for our sins. Not the messages, not the miracles. So, so what changed him? What would possibly change Jude? I begin to think about, it wasn't the messages, it wasn't the miracle, it wasn't even his death. What it was, was an empty tomb. So much power, right? Like, can you imagine, oh, he, he's for real. Like, there's an empty tomb. Not only did I see him die brutally, but now he's walking among us for 40, 40 more days. Preaching and teaching. Everything that he said he would. So he says, he says, a servant of Jesus, a brother of James, servant in the Greek word means doulos, which means slave. He says, a slave to Jesus. In humility, Jude goes on to call himself a servant. So humble, he thought it was more fitting to be a servant than a sibling. He boasted in being a servant and not in his status. Some people need to hear this today. Some people need to hear, it is always going to be a higher title to be a servant than anything else. And even though we serve, we don't have a servant's heart. So let's learn something from Jude. He boasted in being a servant and not in his status. And so Jude addresses the people by introducing himself. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And then he goes on to, the, and then he goes on to say this. He says, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Those that have been called by who? By the Holy Spirit. Those that are loved in who? God the Father. And those who are kept by Jesus. Jude is now expressing the triune nature of, of God. And I, and, I, and I like that. And so he says, loved by God. He says, loved by God, kept by Jesus. Check this out. As Jude addresses people, he needed the people to know who he is. And now he's expressing the people. Now he's saying, I'm addressing these people. Called, loved, and kept. If you have been saved, you have been called, loved, and kept. You are called by God. You, you are loved by God the Father, and now you are kept in Jesus. Check this out. If you are saved, if you have been, call, if you have been called, if you have been loved, and you have been kept, raise your hand. Amen. Amen. Keep those hands up. That's you, right? If you belong to Jesus, this is for you. But you can put your hand down. So now Jude says... I'm a servant, I'm a brother, and now this letter is for you. Every single person that raised their hand, this letter is for you. But he prays for them first, because where he's going to go next, you're going to need this prayer. He says in verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. 
Not only do you need these things in abundance, but if you don't have them, you won't properly be able to accomplish what God is about to call you to do. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So now Jude is about to switch everything up. I address myself. I address this, who this is to. I got no time to waste. In verse 3, he says this. He says, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write about something else. I want to talk about the goodness of God in our lives. But there is something that is happening that is so bad that I must address it right now. My intention was to write about our salvation, but there is a cancer that is eating us up from the inside. And he says this in the rest of verse 3. He says, and I urge you, all of those that raise their hand, he says, I urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. He's saying to contend for the faith. What we think contend is, isn't what he's saying. We think content is just to stand up and maybe be defensive. No, no, no. What he's saying is, I need you to, there needs to be intense warfare. I need you to get out in front of it. I don't want you to put it behind you. I don't want it to wait to step, to wait for you to, like, till it gets at your doorstep. He's saying, no, I want you to go against it by force. Get in the face of it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, Jesus is saying this. He said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. At, at first glance, you would think that, oh, the, the kingdom of heaven is, is in the face of persecution, but it doesn't mean that. This verse does not imply that the kingdom is a victim of violence. It implies that the kingdom advances in victory and it does so through violent spiritual conflict and warfare. Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God makes its penetration by violent entry opposing the human status. It transcends the softness of stead religious formalism and exceeds the pretensions of child play. It refuses to dance to the music of society's expectation that the religious community provide either entertainment or dead transitionalism. Jesus defines the violence of his kingdom expansion by, by defending the sword and fire he has brought is different from the battle techniques of political or military warfare. This call to violence is God's order to shaking up relationships, households, cities, nations by the entry of the Holy Spirit's power working through people. That the violent take it by force. That you must contend for the faith. There is no place for apathy or ambivalence in the follower of Jesus Christ. In our gratefulness, in our very own gratefulness, we have become complacent and disregard the need to take the kingdom by force. So, Jude, why are you asking us to contend for the faith? What is happening that you decided not to write to us about our common salvation, that you desperately need to tell us this? And verse 4, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Certain men have slipped in among you. They acted like members of the church. They acted like sheep. They volunteered. They joined our group. 
they slipped in and somehow led us astray. Jude says three things about this people. He says their judgment is coming. They were con- they're condemned. Man, you tell somebody in church that today, oh, everyone's going to get all sad. Uh, John, you're too offensive. That's rude, right? Jude tells us their judgment is coming. They are condemned. They are ungodly, and they preach in such a way that you feel comfortable in sin. You listen to them online. You like their videos on Instagram, and you subscribe to their YouTubes. They change the grace of God for a license to sin. So we we listen to preachers that never confront us. If you listen, if you listen to preachers that never challenge you, I suggest that you, that you check their doctrine. You cannot preach the entire counsel of God's word without offending somebody. And where there is no offense, there is compromise. Everyone here believe in the word of God, right? The Bible is all we have. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is probably one of the most offensive verses to the world. It says, in the beginning, God. So whatever you believe in that is not from God is a lie. You know how offensive that is to some people? Why do you believe what you believe in? Because in the beginning, God. That's why I believe what I believe. It's hard for us to realize these false teachers, these false prophets, these false believers. Why? Because we love their charisma. We love their influence. We love their following. They're invited to the conferences. Oh, forget what they preach. They got a big following. It's going to give us some clout. Their books are promoted all around. We think in the context of false preachers, false, all these things, right? About somebody just standing up here and preaching heresy. But what about the singer-songwriter that has a worship album but a secular album? Can you imagine? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make an album for the Lord, but I feel called to make a secular album. You know how dumb that sounds? But these are the people. We sing their songs. But I'm not sitting here being legalistic, say we shouldn't sing their songs, because it was Jesus alone that said, what? He says, do what they say, but don't do what they do. My goodness. Preachers who preach grace alone. We have to preach the entire counsel of God's word. How could a church thrive when we don't hear that we got to repent? But when you talk about somebody's sin, it might affect our wallets. It might affect our attention. It might affect, it might, it might affect our numbers in here. The sexually immoral. Paul goes on to say, they, you think I'm, I'm, I'm being tough? Paul goes on to say, don't even invite them into your homes. Don't even invite them to your churches. My goodness. The adulterer. Be careful with those that stir up division. And Jude, he, t- he tells, he's like looking out and he gets even more bold and vicious in verse 12 in Jude. He says, these are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit wither, without fruit twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Jude is now calling these people in the church pointless. They are useless. But because modern preachers are so soft, Because everyone that we hear, modern preachers are compromised because they just don't want to offend nobody. And we forsake the whole counsel of God's word. And we wonder why ravenous wolves are coming in to our churches and destroying the sheep. You wonder why the churches in the Middle East are no longer there. Jude had to write about it. And I believe that it is more relevant today than ever before. Man, John, you're so mean. 
Maybe change your delivery, John. Man, I, oh my goodness. Some dude that wasn't even saved had the nerve to, to, to give me pointers on how to be a better evangelist. He said, John, you're pretty tough, man. He said, maybe change it up, switch it up a little bit. Love people a little more. <laughs> Acting like Jesus wasn't at the temple flipping over tables. Like Jesus wasn't whipping cords at people. He called Pharisees whitewashed tombs. I don't think I can figure out enough words that are like appropriate to say what Jesus was telling them. Whitewashed tombs full of darkness. Paul, acting like Paul wasn't calling people out by name. He called out Peter in front of disciples for something he did wrong. Because he was acting religious, afraid of what people thought. That, but America is so soft. And we have Tempur-Pedic preachers. So soft, afraid, because they don't want to offend nobody. But if you're offended, can I tell you something? Don't hate the messenger. It is the word of God that will begin to point us to the cross, that make us holy, that make us righteous, because God has a standard for his holy people. I care more about your soul than my next invitation. I care more about your soul than my Instagram following or my reputation with unbelievers. Jude implies this. He says, he says if I don't share this, Right now, it will hinder other people's salvation. I must do it. I must get in the front of it or the cancer will grow. Jude told them that false prophets are so rampant that you must contend. You got to fight. It was handed down to us once and for all. It was handed down to us in blood. It will never change. It won't change. You cannot rewrite it. You cannot rewrite what the word of God says. So there are ways that we contend for the faith. Reject false teaching. You push back. You cannot rewrite marriage. God intended marriage to be between a man and a woman. What we consider same-sex marriage, God doesn't even acknowledge as marriage at all. You cannot justify the killing of unborn babies. No matter how it happened, no matter how unjustified it is, it is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. You're afraid to preach this. You're afraid to post this. Because you're afraid of people acting like they're going to give an account for you on the day of judgment. You reject it. You push it away. You stand for truth. We don't do this well. We stand for truth. We talk about it. We defend it. We stand for this and this alone. We study it. We know it. We write it down on the tablets of our hearts. Because one day... Our Bible will be illegal. Oh, no, not in America. No, not at all. It can happen. Like it happened in the Middle East, like it happened in minor Asia. Like it happened in some parts of the world. Why do we complain about the growing darkness when we won't open up our mouths, when we won't take a stand? If we don't take a stand now, if we don't contend for the faith violently, what will be left for our children? What kind of world in Christianity in America will they have to grow up with? We live as a witness. We have integrity. We train our children to do right. We love others. We say no to compromise. We live as a witness for Jesus. America is in trouble. If I preach this 10, 20 years ago, I might be getting stoned. 
But it is more fitting now than ever before. Christianity is losing influence and power in our own nation. If that doesn't make you angry, if that doesn't give you some righteous anger, I don't know what would. And I hear preachers and ministers, and I hear everyone, revival is here, revival is coming. Revival has not come. You can gather at the beach and worship God and call it revival. How is it revival when everyone that came is already saved? Without the preaching of the gospel, without prayer, and without, without the salvation of others that completely turn their life to the Lord, revival has not come. We must contend because government is against our faith. Laws are against our religion. Other religions are against our faith. False preachers are against our faith. Again, you may say, well, John, you're too harsh. I may not view it like you, like you view it. I don't think it's going to get that hard. Can I tell you something? You punk out. But I'm going to stand for my God. I'm going to fight for the preservation of biblical truth. I'm going to stand for the veneration and the honor of our God Almighty. Because I believe that our God is worthy of a fight. I'm tired of the blasphemy. They trash him at work. They trash him online. And it's hurtful. And if we don't get out in front of it and contend for the faith, what will be of your family that you're believing for? What will believe of the young ones? Is it Gen Z? Is it, is it Gen Z? What would be of Gen Z that is, that is, that is more attracted to, the, to the, the laws of attraction rather than the true word of God? Finding their faith and finding their purpose in false deities. In rocks and crystals. You may think this isn't a big deal, but very much is. When you look at the, when you look at the, the believer that was on fire, that was living for God, that was completely on fire, and it was one message, it was one conversation, it was one pastor that completely shipwrecked their faith with their false doctrine. At some point, we gotta consider ourselves more than fathers, more than mothers more than pastors, more than, than just leaders. And we have to consider ourselves those who are called, loved, and kept that we might contend for the faith and win souls while the world stands by and defames and, and completely just mocks the name of our Lord God Almighty. What will you do? Because I begin to look at my faith, right? My, it, it, it is my faith that is that has given me salvation. It is my faith that has given me access to God. It is my faith that my prayers are heard, that I'm given wisdom for life, that I'm given guidance, strength, community, family. It is because of my faith that I have all of these things. And the greatest threat to faith, the greatest threat to our faith, besides your own apathy, is apostasy. It is the false believers, the false, it is the false teachers, the false prophets. This, this quote stuck by me for a year. Pastor Isaac said it about a year ago, and I texted him, and he, and he wrote it to me. because It's just a powerful quote. It says this. It says, the, the greatest danger the disciples will confront from the opposition of the world is not death, but apostasy. It is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And we let them in our life. And they write the songs, 
Some of them are your favorite preachers online. They're on our TVs. Their books are everywhere. They come among us and they shipwreck our faith. And some of you have a hard time listening to this message. And maybe inside of your head, inside of your heart, you're kind of dealing with some things and, and you want to argue about it. And there's some people that even argue with our pastors and, and, and argue with Pastor Omar inside of their heads. It's because you're giving your ear to other people throughout the week. Not every single person should have access to your ears. Your ears are access to your souls. And the garbage we're listening to is shipwrecking our faith little by little by little. The most important thing that we need to contend for the faith is love. Is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith... That's so I could remove mountains if I have not loved. I am nothing. Followers of Christ need to face the reality that American culture is increasingly anti-Christian. I'm American through and through. Red, white, and blue. I, man, I love this nation. It is the greatest nation that the, that the world has known to date. But check this out. The Supreme Court of the United States has called Christians who believe what the Bible teaches about marriage bigots and enemies of the human race. A Supreme Court declared that Christians should be compelled by law to compromise a very religious beliefs that inspire their lives. They want you to forsake what you believe. And if you don't, you are the enemy of, of them. So people say... Well, religion and politics don't mix. The church should stay out of politics. Well, I know a political climate that is at the very top, and it's same-sex marriage. It's teaching your children that it's okay to be, if you're a boy, to be a girl. If you're a girl, to be a boy. They're, they, they want their third-grade teachers to teach them this. And they're giving them books of illustrations. Well, we don't think a big deal, right? But it's, it, it's cartoon porn. One door opening up another because the devil doesn't sleep. He's, after, he's here to steal, kill, and destroy. Stay out of the political climate. Well, I want to stand for the, as a voice for the unborn. I don't care how high the political climate is and how abortion is evil. That God has a plan for that child. Whether the child was born out of rape, whether the child was born out of incest, God has a plan for that child. So we're going to stand for the lives of the unborn. And I don't care how political I get. Because if it's in the word of God, there are so many people looking for their truth. There are so many people looking for the way. But if it is not in the word of God, then they are lost. If it is not in the word of God, I refuse to follow it. No matter if it continues to gradually change very fast. Just in 2014. Not even 10 years ago, same sex became legal in America. It's increasing. What used to be rated R is now PG-13. Things are happening fast. Don't be surprised when the church falls asleep, when everyone begins to fall into what the Supreme Court says, because we are going to jail for what we preach. It's happening to our neighbors north of us in North America and Canada. But because we're so apathetic... 
because we're so selfish, because we refuse to open up ourselves to the entire counsel of God's word, we're stuck. And we're surprised when the wolves come in. Where did you come from? How did you blow my house down after I build it up with cardboard? So how should followers of Christ today live in America or any other culture that increasingly uh, is anti-Christian? Every believer, they're gonna, it, it, it's, it's one thing at a time. I'm going to read this. I'm convinced that every professing Christian, um, a part of the culture that has options to either retreat or to risk it. On the other hand, we can retreat from Christ altogether, but I'm guessing that for the most professing Christians, we won't reject Christ outright or all at once. It will be very subtle, little by little by little. By the worship team, come up. You, you, look, at, you look at the devil. It talked about in Isaiah and it talked about in Ezekiel. Why the devil was casted out of heaven. It says that he was casted out of heaven for much trading. When he studied the scriptures, this much trading was he was going around heaven and he was speaking to the other angels. He says, I'm going to be better than God. I'm going to be greater than God. Saying false things. And then he, then he was casted out of heaven and he took a third of those people that believed him. From the beginning of time, it happened. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it happened. The very first church, it happened. It's happening now. And, and I plead with you. What do we do with the message like this? How do I simply answer the call when I make an altar call? Like, what do we do? What do we, what do we respond to? What am I saying? Whether you heard a, a very tough message about false preachers, false prophets, it wasn't even about that. What it's about is that we as Christians, as believers, must contend for the faith. That if you don't do it, who will? Do souls still mean anything to us? I know it does to this church. We honor them every time they come here. We connect them. There are people that will literally give up their time, everything. It is a burden for them. They carry this weight of the, uh, of the lost and, and they get them in church. How are you doing? Can I get you a cup? Like, we do that well as a church. I love our hospitality. What happens when we leave these walls? When we don't have the comfort of our brother next to us to encourage us that I must somehow welcome these new believers. that you're afraid of will not give account for you before our Lord I don't want to be some superman or I'm keeping stats of how many people got saved when I spoke or how many people I ministered to at the grocery store that got saved I'm not keeping track of all that but I'm keeping track of one thing God was I obedient to your voice we need to we, we need to be obedient to God there are people in your life that need to hear that they are sinners, but they are loved by God the Father, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die a brutal death on the cross, that, my goodness, that he was degraded, that he was beaten, that he was embarrassed, a brutal death, just to die and rise again, because what we could not do for ourselves, he done it all on that cross, the perfect lamb that was slain for you and I, if I could have every head bow, every eye closed.
I know I didn't speak so much, uh, uh, so much of, of the, that the Lord loves you, but, but I'm telling you that the Lord had put this on my heart and, and, and I'm glad I did, but you're in this place and, you're, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. This is what I prayed for. This is what I know that God does. If you're sitting there and somehow, some way, there is something deep down inside of your heart that is literally God speaking to you, saying, I love you. I want more for you. And I want to spend eternity with you here in paradise. There's a call inside of your heart. I prayed for the new believer. And I pray for the person that comes here every week, bound by religion, bound by pride, bound by the traditions of coming every single time. But I believe the Holy Spirit can break down those walls and he's speaking to you right now. I'm not going to spend much time on this because if it is a voice of God and you want to just respond, I'm telling you, you want to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You're saying, I want to live for him. Will you raise your hand? I want the opportunity and privilege to pray with you. Our church is going to pray with you and we'd be glad to do it. Ushers, if you could help me out. I see one back there. Anyone else? One brave soul. I see another hand back there. I see another hand. God has been, God is waiting for you. I'm going to do this one more time. Power of the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. There are already brave souls all across this place that are, that are willing and able. We want the opportunity to celebrate. If that's you, raise your hand. All right. Check this out. If you raise your hand, Will you please boldly, confidently come join me at this altar church? Can we rise with them? Can we welcome them into the God's family, into the kingdom? Hallelujah. Praise God, Lord, you're worthy. If you raise your hand, come join me. There are people that are going to join with you. The Bible says that when one person comes to the Lord, all of heaven rejoices. Church, can we rejoice? My goodness, God is good. Hallelujah. People getting saved. What else is it about? Praise God. So church, we're going to pray with them. They're important, right? So we're going to say this prayer. You're not going to say it to me. You're going to say it to God. Just humble your heart. Whatever the Lord looks like to you, you say, you're, you're going to just repeat this to him. All right. So close your, eyes, close your eyes and bow your head. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for salvation, for dying on the cross for my sins. Today, I acknowledge you and I accept you as my savior. Use me for your kingdom for your glory, for your purpose. Give me confidence, boldness, and understanding. Give me patience and wisdom on how to follow you for the rest of my days on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Reach Church Paramount. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Reach Paramount. To give and support this podcast and ministry, visit our website at reachparamount.com slash give.